But John chapter 7, starting with verse 19, we're going to see now that Jesus is giving defense, if you will, for his doctrine. He said, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? We're going to see throughout the Gospel of John, and we've seen up to this point, that Jesus, time and time again, he uses the law to prove his point. Because these religious leaders, uh, the Jews, were very much all about the law and keeping the law. That was their focus. But he was constantly challenging this religion of the Jews. Now, who instituted this religion? It's the only, in, the only religion that he ever instituted. God did, right? Was Judaism. But we can see that over time, they took it to a whole different level. Uh, in the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God wasn't speaking through his prophets, they just kind of made up their own rules. They interpreted the law the way that they wanted to and started adding to the law all these sub-laws, if you will, that all the people were supposed to keep. And there's no way. They couldn't keep just ten of them, let alone all of these others that was being instituted. But the focus was on keeping those things. So it became more of a religion than it did, what, a relationship. So think of it this way. Religion is a focus on a system. It's a focus on a system, and it's me coming to God on my terms. That's what religion is all about. Have you ever heard uh, one of your family or friends, uh, when it comes to you coming to the Lord, they say that what? You, they got religion. <laughs> you know, they got religion. Well, what is religion? Religion is a set of rules and laws and guidelines that are supposed to be kept. But a relationship, where religion is a focus on a system, relationship is focus on a Savior. And it's me coming to God on His terms. Coming to God on His terms. What are God's terms? Well, it's right here. We hold it in our hands. His Word gives us those terms. His Word gives us or should give us a focus on the Savior rather than a focus on a system of belief. So, let's look at religion and the, and the gospel in, in contrast here. Religion emphasizes the outward what we do, what we say. The gospel emphasizes what? The inward. Am I changed from the inside out? Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of our minds. How do we renew our minds? There's really only one way. It's to gain wisdom and knowledge, but from God's word, because that's true wisdom and knowledge, isn't it? That's how we renew our minds. That's how we start thinking differently. We just don't think the same way. We don't approach things the same way. And you, you know that to be true, right? As a Christian, you see things happening around you in the world, in your community, your family, whatever, and you react to that. But as believers, we should be reacting in a different way. We should be reacting the way God would have us react. We should be looking to God's Word and to God to see how we would respond to this or that, right? So religion emphasizes the outward. The gospel emphasizes the inward. And number two, religion emphasizes prohibition. The gospel emphasizes freedom. 
John 8.32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Make you free. And the truth does make us free. It, it is freeing to us. It frees us up because we can know and understand and rest in the fact that it's truth. We don't have to be confused by that. We can say, Lord, I know that you've given us your word, and we're going to rest on the fact and have confidence in the fact your word is truth. And that sets us free because we don't have to be burdened by uh, a bunch of dialogue that's just you know, garbage. It's just not useful. So we can rest on the, tr on the truth of God's word. Number three, religion sets up barriers. The gospel breaks barriers down. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not about divisions, is it? Uh, think about, what do you think about uh, the, what God thinks about uh, denominations? Do you think God ever wanted there to be denominations and divisions? Where did those come, come from? Us, right? Uh, we, we have uh, caused those lines to divide because of differences in doctrine, differences of the way we interpret Scripture, and so we've developed different camps or different tribes, if you will, that feel differently about different things, but yet what we ought to be focused on is the simple truth of salvation through Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. That's where we should start and realize that we are all, those who believe in Christ, we are all one in Christ. We're all brothers and sisters. Uh, pastor Steve, who's the pastor of the church that meets here on Sunday mornings, he came across the street today and visited with us over at the building. And it's just so neat to see that, yeah, there's differences between us and what we, how we interpret certain things, but yet we're brothers in the Lord. And I just have great respect for the man. Uh, what he's done for us is just amazing because, like we've said before, can you imagine a church allowing another church to use their building? There's not a whole lot of churches that would do that, but he was very open about that. He said, it's not my building anyway, it's God's. So if God wants you to use it, that's great. And he's been just a blessing to us. But he's our brother in the Lord, as well as all those people that attend that church on Sunday morning. So we've got brothers and sisters in the Lord throughout the world. You know, uh, the, few, the few times that I've taken some mission trips down to Costa Rica, gone down there several times, and meeting people down there and realizing, I don't even speak their language. I don't even come close to speaking their language. <laughs> and actually, they don't do too bad with, with mine, but I'm terrible at theirs. But yet we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that crosses all barriers because of that relationship that we share with Jesus Christ. So number four, religion says, work your way, and Jesus says, I am the way. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's where we can have that unity with brothers and sisters in Christ, but to know that to be the truth and resting in that, right? So, religion. Judaism had become a religion of rules and regulations as we see uh, through uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus points that stuff out. 
So while the Jewish leaders claim to know and understand God's truth, at the same time, they were also attempting to kill Jesus. Doesn't make any sense at all. Verse 20, the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now that's quite a statement to say to God, you have a demon. <laughs> we look at that, we think, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. This is Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself, and they're saying, you have a demon. 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Once again, Jesus uses the law to refute the enemy's argument. They're not buying into it though, are they? Why is that? Their standard of judgment was not honest. It wasn't righteous. They were judging without all of the facts, by what they saw to be right. So the story is told of a woman who was waiting in an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shops, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man sitting beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag in between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. So she munched the cookies and watched the clock, and the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I would blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and she sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed to the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat. Then she sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise as there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. <laughs> if mine are here, she moaned in despair, the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. <laughs> so it can happen sometimes, judging others. Amen? Amen. We see that happening in Jesus' life. We see that happening in the scene we're looking at tonight in chapter 7. The people still do that today. We still do that today judging based on what we perceive based on appearance without all the facts or all the information years ago uh, when Chris and I lived in North Carolina I was on staff as a youth guide at church there 
And then, and this was a, it was a small little mountain town. It was in some ways a lot like Estes Park. You know, tough place to do ministry, suffering for Jesus in this little mountain community. <laughs> Beautiful setting, you know. But <laughs> one day I'm driving down the street and I see this guy walking down the street. You know, he's got really no hair on this side and kind of hair falling off on this side and earrings and tattoos and leather and uh, you know studs and I was like goodness sakes look at that would you just look at that you know I mean in my mind wonder who led him into town you know you know you just start going through your mind he obviously doesn't know what this community's like so I parked because I was going to go into the sandwich shop to get something to eat the people that own the sandwich shops are Christians and I saw him going in there and I thought oh great yeah so I get out of my car walk into the sandwich shop he's sitting there and he says hey how you doing hi he reached out to shake my hand I shook his hand I said how you doing you know he said do you live here in town yeah yeah I, I live here I said how about you are you visiting because in my mind I'm going he has to be visiting you know he certainly doesn't live here no I just uh, I just moved here I'm the youth pastor down at a church and yeah you know <laughs> Judging. I was judging, wasn't I? That's just one story. I'm sure that if I really wanted to share, I, I could come up with dozens of times when I've done that. I'm, I'm sure we would all agree. We've all been there, haven't we? We pass judgment on a situation or a person without having all the facts, all the information. Jesus says in verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And we do that. Appearance seems to be the, kind of the first thing that we do. You know, I, we, because I guess that's the first thing that we see. What they look like, you know, what they're wearing, what they're, what they're doing. So we judge by appearance. But righteous judgment is based on truth. And in this particular case, they were talking with the truth himself. They were face to face with the truth himself. But they just didn't believe it. So what did they do? They, they judged. They judged. We all know and have seen it used incorrectly. The well-quoted verse, Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? So people today will use this verse to demand a virtual gag order, if you will, on all such activity. Hey, don't be judging me, man. Don't be judging me. Judge not, lest you be judged. We've heard that, haven't we? It, it's used. They think you're, they're using it very effectively. But we know, or we should know, that that's not what's meant really in this verse. Certainly, we shouldn't put ourselves in a place of judgment unless it is righteous judgment. Well, here in our text, the religious leaders, they'd already judged Jesus, even though he'd given them proof who he was. He said in verse 21, I did one work and you will all marvel. So, what work is, is he referring to? 
Remember in John 5 when we went through that, Jesus was in Jerusalem. He had just cleansed the temple, turned over the money changers' tables, drove out the livestock. Then he went to the pools of Bethesda. And there at the pools, there was this crippled man. And Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? Then pick up your mat and, and walk. And then the Jewish leaders ran across this man and he shared, hey, why are you carrying your mat? Hey, I just got healed. So, uh, hey, you're not supposed to be carrying your mat. It's the Sabbath. So they were trying to make an issue out of it being the Sabbath and what he was doing. Their religion was getting in the way, right? But what should they have been doing? Rejoicing with this man that he was healed. He was crippled no longer. But they were pointing out what he was doing wrong. So it wasn't so much that they marveled at the miracle, because they didn't. They marveled at the fact that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And because of that, we saw in John 5, verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. That's when it all started. That's the first time that we see in the Gospel of John where these people were wanting to kill him because of what he was doing, because of what he was teaching. So even though they denied it, they were seeking to kill him. Why? Because they had judged him. They'd already judged him. He, he didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit in their scheme of things. He, didn't, uh, he went against their religiosity, if you will. Then Jesus says in verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Well, what is righteous judgment? What is it? The first principle that we see in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, is that we must begin with ourselves. We have to do, before we judge, to, to make it a righteous judgment, we have to be in a place where we take an accurate measurement of ourselves. We assess ourselves and where we are before we're going to pass judgment on someone else. So what are we? We are sinners saved by grace, aren't we? Strip it down to what it is. We're sinners, but we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, so we are saved by His grace and by His mercy. So if we look at it from that standpoint, and we look at someone else's lives, well, I guess maybe they could just be a sinner saved by grace as well. So it's when you look at it in that light, it's hard to pass judgment on someone else because of that. And if they're not saved, we don't always know that, but if they're not saved, you don't think they are, they don't really know any better anyway, do they? They don't know the standards that God has set forth, what they should do. So this first principle then, we, we begin with ourselves. Jesus is not forbidding us to judge others. He's saying it must be done with what? righteous judgment. Luke writes in his gospel on this topic of judging, for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, by the same method or practice that you judge others, you will be judged back in the same way. Now if we were to think about that before we actually judge someone else, it might cause us to pause, wouldn't it? Because whatever I do to them, or however it is I judge them, the same thing is going to be used against me. It's kind of a scary thought. 
But did you ever notice that many times the sin we are so quick to point out in someone else's life is secretly the same sin that we struggle with ourselves? We recognize it in them very quickly because we struggle with it as well. So if we do that honest assessment of ourselves first, wow, yeah, I see that they're messing up in that, but you know, I struggle with that too. We should recognize it. So we have a choice then to judge not in, in righteousness or judge in righteousness. So as believers, here's the truth. We can use righteous judgment in the life of someone else, but we can't judge for condemnation. Condemnation is reserved for God and God alone. So we can't pass that judgment on someone else. Certainly it would be a truth that if someone doesn't come to Jesus Christ, then they're going to, to go to hell. They're going to be damned. I mean, we could, we could say that, right? Because we know it to be true. However, we don't know how God's working in their life, do we? And then the other part of that is we don't know how it is that God wants to use us to work in their lives. So in righteous judgment... It can only be, it can't be for condemnation, it can only be for two other things. Identification and restoration. So whether it's in the life of a believer or it's in the life of an unbeliever, we can encourage that unbeliever, can't we? We can still encourage them. It's kind of a different thing because we could call out and use God's word in that situation, but they may just not understand they're just not going to get it because they don't have a relationship with the Lord. They don't have the Holy Spirit working in their life, so there's a good chance they're not going to be convicted in the same way that a believer would. But for identification, if another believer is falling short, is moving down a path you don't want them to move down, and you recognize that, you don't get all over them about it. You go to them and recognize that they are moving in a wrong direction. And it's probably something that we've done as well. So we can come to them and identify that, yes, but also we need to be involved in the process of restoration as well. See, we're real quick to point out, aren't we? But we're not real good about investing in them and helping them through that situation. And so as believers, that's where we need to be. Because we would want that to come back to us in the same way, wouldn't we? Just like the scripture said. If we were erring, if we were going the wrong direction, really, for our healthy Christian life, our Christian walk, we would want someone to point that out and encourage us and come alongside us and help walk us through that so that we can get past it ourselves. So, using God's righteous word to instruct and encourage another brother or sister in the Lord identification of the sin using God's word as the standard not a standard we come up with on our own using God's word as the standard and then coming alongside of them for restoration using God's word as the instruction so we come alongside of them identifying the sin and using God's word as the standard this is why it's sin and then we walk with them, we encourage them for uh, restoration using God's word for instruction. Here's why. 
this is sin and here's why and here's how you can overcome that. Because God always wants to work in us and through us in a way that we overcome whatever we're struggling with, doesn't He? He doesn't want us to be trapped in our sin or stuck in our sin. He wants to, us to come to Him and know that He can work in us and through us to help us overcome it, and He can use others in our lives to help in that process as well. So that's righteous judgment. Righteous judgment is saying, listen, brother or sister, this is sin in your life because God's Word says that it is. Can we take a look at it? Let's take a look at it, because I want you to know that, you know, I've struggled with that in the past too. We need to love them through it and let them know that, hey, we're not perfect. We struggle with things as well. But we have recognized this in their lives because we have recognized it in our own lives in the past or currently. And we want to use God's Word, both of us together, to grow past that, encouraging them in that. So that's righteous judgment. We're saying because I love you, I want you to see and understand that you're moving down uh, the wrong path. God has put you on my heart because sometimes I struggle with this as well. So let's seek God together to see what His Word says about getting back on track. See what that is? And it's not a... In that way, when you look at it, judgment doesn't sound quite so harsh, does it? Because you're using that judgment as righteous judgment to help someone in their walk with the Lord. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you remember what it said in the Old Testament about iron sharpening iron? So iron is... You can use it to sharpen iron, can't you? But what happens a lot of times when you rub two pieces of metal together? Some sparks, exactly. Sparks fly, they do. Because they might be opposed to each other. They might not be getting along with what is being communicated to them. But in righteous judgment, we come alongside of them lovingly and we say, wow, you know, you know, several years ago or a month ago or whatever, I was struggling with this one thing. It's not the same thing you're going through, but man, it was tough. And I had someone come alongside me and encourage me and guide me and show me the truth of God's word so I could apply it in my life. And man, they, they helped me through, through God to get past that and get over that. And it's all really all in the way how you present it, isn't it? You can present it in love or not love, right? Not love is normally not received very well. That's when the, the sparks fly. You know, when you come up to them and, you know, I see what you've been doing. If you don't change your ways, you're going to hell. <laughs> you know, if you come at them like that, who wants to receive from that? I don't. But if you come to them in love and you use that righteous judgment, using God's word as the standard and using God's word for instruction, I think it's going to be uh, more well received. So the religious leaders were all about following the law, yet we see here that they wanted to kill Jesus. It's ironic uh, at the least. And Jesus points it out. But also rumors of their wanting to kill him was starting to leak out 
throughout the city. Other people were hearing about it and finding out. So much so that in verse 25 we see, now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Now the people thought this was very interesting. The leaders, they knew, wanted to take him and have him killed. But he spoke boldly in their presence, and the leaders said nothing to him. Maybe he is the Christ. Well, then why would they want to kill him? Maybe he isn't the Christ. So there's debate going on there, isn't there? They're not sure what to make of this scene. Because there were some that were saying he was the Messiah, but their own leaders were saying, we need to take him away and kill him. Verse 27, However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So they were trying to apply some logic that wasn't logical at all by saying nobody knows where the Christ comes from, where the Messiah is coming from. We know where Jesus of Nazareth comes from. Nazareth. <laughs> Makes sense, right? So conclusion was, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he didn't come from where? What was prophesied? The Messiah would come from where? Bethlehem, right? Now, if we use a little logic here, why did Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem to start with? A census, right? And taxes. There ought to be some records of that. Why have all these people come to their home city, to their birthplace, to pay taxes and not keep any records? You wouldn't know who paid and who didn't, would you? So it would seem like, wow, you know what? What we could do is, this is Jesus, he's the son of Joseph and Mary. Maybe we should just go to Bethlehem and see if there's any records there of, of this. And we'd have proof, wouldn't we? If he was never born in Bethlehem or nothing, we, we could prove that he wasn't there, then he couldn't be the Messiah. But they didn't even do that. They just said he's not. They knew he was the son of Joseph and Mary, and he was from Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth, right? So the people could not see the truth because they were blinded by what they thought were dependable facts. The facts that were being shared by whom? The religious leaders. People are still blinded today. They are willing to believe it if it causes no change on their part. Hey, I've heard about this religion, this church we can go visit. And you go there, and you don't have to do anything different. You just get to sit there and feel good about yourself, and you walk out, you don't have to change. It's wonderful. We can just still be who we are and be involved in all the things that we're normally involved in. We don't have to worry about it at all. If, it, if your truth fits into my lifestyle or the convictions that I already have, then I'm open to what you have to say. That sounds like a great religion. They, they make this judgment call, don't they? But these people, this crowd in our text, we know that they did believe in God. The Jewish people... They believed in God. They had a fear of God. They wanted to keep God's law. And they knew of the prophecies. But they just didn't want to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. They were judging that what he said about himself was not true. Verse 28, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. So Jesus is there in the temple doing what? What does the text say? 
He taught. He's teaching. He's sharing his doctrine. Doctrine from the Father. The truth from the Father. We still continue that today by teaching God's Word. All of it. Genesis to the maps, like we said last week. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. What is the whole counsel of God? All of it. His whole word. So if the Lord delays His coming, we will continue to go through God's word verse by verse. The rapture may come before we get done with the book of John at the pace we're moving at. I don't think anyone will care. Will you? Nobody's going to care, right? You're going to be going, man, we didn't even get through the book of John. Nobody's going to be doing that. We're, we're just going to be thrilled, elated, right? So we are committed to teaching through the Word of God. We will do that here. You can count on it. But unfortunately, that's not always the practice, is it? Many churches today have moved towards a watered-down version of the gospel. Maybe you have uh, visited some of those churches. And it's not the gospel at all that they're teaching. That's why we go through God's Word verse by verse, to get the full counsel, the full doctrine of God's Word. Now, I I know having said that, it sounds like I'm judging, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm judging those other churches because they don't teach God's Word. I think that's righteous judgment. Because why? I'm saying they're not teaching God's Word. They should be teaching God's Word. I think that that's judging them correctly in that they need to be teaching God's Word. They're either doing it or they're not. Pastor Chuck Smith uh, he said for years, and we continue that by having this focus, this goal of making you the best loved, best fed sheep in Berthoud. Have you ever heard that phrase before? To be the best loved, best fed sheep in this community. That's what we want to do. We want to feed you God's word and we want to love you as God would have us love you. So we'll see a difference between those that don't teach God's word and those, those that do. That's why we're going to teach it, all of it. We want to love you and give you sound doctrine, as we talked about last week. But there's a difference, too, between teaching and preaching. And we're admonished to preach, yes. But once an unbeliever has been preached to and has received Christ, now that young believer must be taught what it is to follow Christ. They need to set under teaching. Most of what we hear, a lot of what we hear on TV especially, it's, it's not teaching, it's preaching. It's hype, it's emotional, it's entertaining. It's more about the presentation than it is the content. It can be the exhortation to do more, but the people are yearning for the practical application of, can someone just teach me how to do that? Right? It's one thing to preach it, and that's good. But there better be solid teaching to go with that to show them how to accomplish what they've been preached at, right? Here's what you need to be doing. Well, how do I do that? Teach me. I just want to be taught. The story is told of an old Native American who went into a church, one of these churches that lacked 
biblical content. But this pastor made up for it with a lot of shouting and pulpit pounding, more shouting, running back and forth. And at the end, the people loved it. And they said, man, he preached up a storm. He preached up a storm this morning. And so they asked this old Native American, well, what did you think about it? And the old man summed it up in six simple words. High wind, big thunder, and no rain. <laughs> preached up a storm. High wind, big thunder, and no rain. Jesus, as we see here, He's teaching these people doctrinal truth. And it's all about relationship. Relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am from the Father. I know the Father. It is the Father who sent me. Verse 30 says, Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid a hand on Him because His hour had not yet come. We see that statement again. We've seen it several times already in the book of John. We'll see it again and again through the book of John. His hour has not yet come. It's not time for them to take Him yet. There's still work to be done. There's still the plan that the Father has for the Son that has to, be, uh, that has to take place. So the time had not come for Him to take Him yet. Verse 31, And many of the people believed in Him and said, When the Christ comes... Will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Again, the focus on the signs, the miracles. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So now they've ratcheted it up a notch, haven't they? Not only are they saying they want him killed, that they want to take him, but they're actually sending guys out to do it. Now, the verse also says that many believed in Him. But it was a faith based on miracles and signs. But at least it was a beginning, wasn't it? We studied in the er earlier in the Gospel that initially that's what attracted Nicodemus. He became interested in Jesus because of His miracles. But eventually, uh, he openly professed faith in Christ. So these Pharisees, the leaders, they heard the crowd murmuring these things, the verse says, the people were beginning to talk. They were beginning to discuss these things. They were beginning to believe. And these leaders didn't like the direction that it was going. Something must be done. So the leaders determined that he must be removed. So they sent officers to take him. But what did Jesus do? He continued to teach. He could share straightforward and boldly because he didn't live in the fear of men. He had a heavenly focus, and he knew that he would be there soon. So the implication that he gives us is that these religious leaders would not be joining him there. Verse 33, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Where, where is he going that we cannot go? You know, is he going to be a missionary somewhere? Is he leaving? Where, where is he going? And as we read that, it's quite the contrast to what we see Jesus saying to his disciples 
in John chapter 14. Turn over to John chapter 14 uh, as we close with this tonight. John chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Remembering that what Jesus is saying here, he's saying to give comfort to and encourage his disciples. But also he's saying this to give comfort to and encourage us as believers as well. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. A drastic different dialogue that he's having with his disciples here than what we just saw he had with these religious leaders. Amen? You don't know where I'm going. I'm going away and you don't know. And you can't go where I'm going. Basically he's saying to them, it's not that they will never be permitted to go. It's just that based on where they are right now, caught in their religion rather than relationship, they can't go. They can't go. But what's he saying to these disciples? What's he saying to us? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Amen?